The topic of tonight's class is doubts. We want to talk about the benefit of the doubt. What benefits can we find in doubts? So, uh, as I said, this is Rosh Chodesh. This is the first day of the first uh, of the Rosh Chodesh Adar. And the saying goes that Mishenichnas Adar Marbin Besimcha. When Adar comes in, we have to increase in joy. So that means we have to be joy, joyful anyway, to begin with. And then when Adar comes in, we have to take the joy and start increasing it, and, and then go on increasing it more and more. And actually, it never says that we should stop increasing it. So we start with Adar, and then we go all the way up to the next Adar, and then we go on increasing it again. That's how it's supposed to be. Every once in a while, life takes, makes sure that there are some decreases, so that we're motivated to do some increases. But the, the trajectory the, where we're going is we want to increase in joy. So the question is, what is joy? And how do you increase in joy? Now, there are all kinds of definitions and explanations for what joy is. But one of them is a very famous phrase uh, that many people use in Hebrew. And it's a well-known Jewish sort of saying and proverb. And that saying is, in Hebrew, it goes, En simcha kehatarat asfekot. There is no joy like the undoing of doubts. If you, wanna, if you have doubts, if you're unsure of what you have to do, of what it is you're learning, you, and maybe you, you have doubts about yourself, maybe you have doubts about Hashem and about Emunah, about faith, and then you're able to solve that doubt, resolve the doubt. It's like an, the same verb for the undoing, it's also untying. It's like a little knot, and you have to untie the knot. And then there's something joyful about it. It's such a relief if you're confused about what it is you need to do, about what it is you're trying to figure out, and you're riddled with doubt. Riddled means you're full of holes. And then you're able to get rid of doubt instead of being ridden by doubt. Riddled with doubt. Then, uh, then, then it's joy. It's a, it's a much joy comes into this. Now, where is this coming from? So I always thought it was the sages. It was Chazal. But it turns out it's not from them. It comes from the interpreter Mitzudat David. And he puts this little phrase that he coined in, uh, when he explains a verse from Mishle, from Proverbs. It's Proverbs 15.30. And in Hebrew it goes like this. In Hebrew it goes, Ma'or enayim yesamech. Ma'or enayim yesamech liv. The vision of the eyes or an eyesight or the light of the eyes, ma'or enayim, the light of the eyes, brings joy to the heart. Ushmu'at tova tedashen atem. And a good, it's a, it, the, the simple translation would be good news, shmu'at tova, or a good hearsay. But it's, it comes from hearing. If you hear something good, tedashen atem, it nourishes the bone. So again, it's ma'or enayim yesamech lev, bones. Ma'or enayim yesamech lev, u'shmu'at vate dashen atem, the light of the eyes brings joy to the heart, and a good hearing, a good thought that you hear, brings nourishment, it nourishes the bone. So there's the heart and the bone, and there's joy, and there's strengthening or nourishing. And when the Mitzudah David explains the first half, ma'or enayim yesamech lev, 
Then he says, Ma'or enayim is when something lights up your eye, when you have an understanding and uh, things are clarified. And then he says, En There is no joy like the dispersing or the undoing of doubts. And when he gets to the second half, he says, what is the Shmu'a Tova? It's not just good news. It's a, it's, a, it's a new chidush, it's a new interpretation, new Torah idea, new Torah thought. That nourishes the bone. That's when you disperse a doubt. That was the first half of the verse. The vision of the eyes brings joy to the heart. This is what he says, that the greatest joy is when you get rid of doubts. And the second half is all about having a chidush Torah, is when you hear a positive Torah idea. So it turns out that we have two sides to, to how things sort of light up in our heads. And one of them is more negative. Really, this in, in Hasidic terms, he's talking about the two intellectual faculties that we call chokhmah and bina. Chokhmah and bina, one of their characteristics is that chokhmah, wisdom, is something more positive. And... Bina, understanding, it's more negative, not in the sense that it's negative value, but it's negative in the sense that it solves problems. So chokhmah, wisdom, is like, is like the good hearsay, the good chidush that nourishes the bone. It builds me. I study Torah and it sort of builds my inner being, like the bones, the, the tough part of me, the, what I stand on, what, I, what, what, I'm, what I'm based on. And... And whereas the, the first half of the verse is talking about problem-solving, doubt-solving, and that's more bina, understanding. So we have these two sides, and together it's like a good couple. You need to both get rid of doubts, and you need to also, it's not enough to get rid of doubts, you also have to nourish the bone, or feed your head, feed your soul, with new chidushei Torah. You can get rid of all the doubts, but then you're still empty. Then you don't have doubts, but you don't have nourishment either. So you need both. So this is the original verse from Proverbs 15.30. And the Mitzvah David gave this uh, explanation, and that's where we got the phrase, En There is no joy like the undoing of doubts. So this sounds that it's, uh, things are pretty simple. Doubts are a bad thing. And getting rid of doubts is a good thing, and it brings us a lot of joy. And now that it's Rosh Chodesh Adar, and we need to increase in joy, then we need to... Uh, uh, go, against, go against doubts. But as we know, it's not so simple. And doubts have a way of creeping back in. Even when you find all kinds of solutions to get over doubt, for example, you can brush doubts away, or you can say that uh, uh, you can find maybe some simple, easy solution, and that sort of keeps the doubt quiet for a little bit, and then you move on. But as we all know, when you have serious doubts about something, it's not so easy to get rid of them. And many, it very, very often it, it happens that you get rid of the doubt, and it keeps coming back again and again and again. It's like a worm that eats you up and goes back. So it's not so easy. It's easy to say, just get rid of the doubts and then you'll be happy. But it's, uh, not so, it's easier said than done. And so we want to go deeper into this. Now, um, why is this perfect for the beginning of the month of Adar? Because at the center of the month of Adar, we have the holiday called Purim. And Purim is all about our battle, our war against the Amalekite people, which have been haunting us ever since we've left Egypt. They're the first people to attack us after the Exodus, just before Mount Sinai. 
and it was a harsh battle, and then they came back during the, Papillon, the Babylonian exile, and this is the story of the scroll of Esther. It was Haman with the plan to exterminate all the Jews, and then they have this tendency to come back again and again, and we can't seem to get rid of them. And it's very customary to agree to say that the Nazis, Nazi Germany, was a kind of reincarnation of Amalek. And in fact, the Nazis themselves admitted this. And uh, they were aware of that they are Amalek for us. And it's well known that one of the greatest officers, I don't remember who he was, in the Nuremberg trials, trials when he was executed, then he says, he says, Purimspiel, this is now you have another Purimspiel now as you're hanging me. So, so, but the thing is, and it keeps coming back in all kinds of ways, both in, uh, on a national or historical level and on a personal psychological level. So uh, now, why is this connected to what we said about doubts? It's because there's a very basic Hasidic interpretation that says that Amalek, if you want to understand Amalek, from a psychological perspective, Hasidut, what it does is that every idea in the Torah wants to see it as, as a reflection of something that is within each individual also. That's why it can apply to each and every person in every moment in history, is that the story of Amalek and the, and the, the, the fight with Amalek, it's all about trying to win over internal doubts. And there are all kinds of hints and allusions why that is the particular thing that Amalek symbolizes. So the most basic hint that is always given is gematria. Gematria, the numerical value of the word amalek, 240, is identical to the numerical value of the word for doubt in Hebrew, which is safek. Safek is doubt, also equals 240. There's, there's some other words, but not that many. There's a bunch of words that equal 240, and it's very, it's very clear that if you're looking for something negative from the perspective of faith of emunah, then safek, the kind of safek, the kind of doubt that undermines your faith, is something negative, and that becomes an interesting way to explain Amalek. But it's not the only hint. There are some more hints that are maybe, if you don't like gematria so much, some people like them very much, some people don't, but there are other hints. And, and one of the, the, most, the most clear ones is what is said immediately before the verse that describes the Amalekites attacking the Israelites in the desert. This is happening in Refidim, and this incident just before is that the Jewish people complained that there's no water, and then Moshe took the stone and hid the stone, and the water came out, and they, but, in, but as it happened several times in the desert, uh, they started doubting whether God was among them or not. And then the final verse of this story is Hayesh Hashem Bekirbenu Im Ain, is God among us or not? And then the next verse is, and Amalek came and fought with Israel. Hayesh Hashem Bekirbenu Im Ain, and one story. Immediately afterward, Vayavo Amalek Vayelachem Im Israel. So that's a very clear allusion. It's not just a gematria. You have a very, very clear sort of hint from this, the, the fact that these two verses are one next to the other. So that's another thing. But there's, there's some more things that we can say. When you think about doubt, what does doubt do? So what doubt does is that it wants to keep you going in circles instead of making decisions. You want to make decisions, and doubt is a kind of negative force that comes and sort of topples every decision you want to make and says, who says, are you absolutely sure? 
Are you, do you know for certain this is the right way to go? Maybe, maybe you shouldn't marry this person. Maybe there's someone else better. Right? Today there's this thing called FOMO, the fear of missing out. Every time you, you go to a certain, you want to live in a certain place, you want to go to a certain party, you want to date someone, there's this voice coming, maybe you're missing out on something better. And this kind of doubt is destructive, and it keeps you going in circles all day, and, and it can make you go in circles all your life, and, you're, and you'll never go anywhere. So really what it wants to do is it wants to keep all your thoughts inside your head. And once you're going from one option to the other option, from one possibility to the other possibility, and never actualize any possibility, and that means that the area or the place in, the, in our psychological makeup that it, so to speak, attacks, it's like the neck. The neck here symbolizes the, the transition, like the funnel, from the realm of thoughts to the realm of feeling and action. So Amalek, and that goes along beautifully with the name Amalek. Amalek connotes the two words Ammolek, a beheading people. It's like a people, it's a nation, or a beheading nation. It's a nation that beheads you. It's molek. What does it mean in this, in this sense? It tries to disconnect your head from your body. It wants you to only have thoughts and never take those thoughts and bring them down into actual action. And so this is another illusion that Amalek cuts up, cuts off, beheads, metaphorically, the head from the body, and this is exactly what doubt does. It, it keeps you in your thoughts, in your realm of thoughts, and it doesn't go anywhere. And there's even another illusion. When the war with Amalek in the desert ends, Hashem says a very interesting verse. It's interesting the way it's written. It's five consecutive <coughs> words, each one with only two letters long. It says, Ki yad al midor dor. For there is a hand on the throne of God. This is like the hand of Amalek that's reaching for the throne of Hashem. And then there is a, like, and then the continuation of the verse, there's an internal war between Hashem and Amalek. It's like an, an ongoing, endless war. But if you look at the first part, the interesting part of the verse that has the five consecutive words with two letters each, then the first three words, it's okay. They're, they're two letters long. Ki yad al. For there is a hand on. But then the last two words, kes ya, the throne of Hashem, they're words that are cut in half. There are, something is missing. Kes is short for kise, so the last letter, the aleph, is missing. And, the, and the, the final word is only the first half of Hashem's name. It's only yud and hey. What about the vav and hey? So the sages explain that Hashem's throne is incomplete, and Hashem's name is also incomplete until Amalek is vanquished. There's something about Amalek that cuts up the name of God and cuts up the throne in some way. So the throne we're going to put aside, but let's focus on God's name. What does it mean that you only have the first two letters of Hashem and not the last two letters of Hashem? So the Kabbalistic model, the diagram is, is that the first two letters of Hashem's name, they connote the higher level, which is like the head. And the last two letters of Hashem's name, it's like the lower aspect of things, which is like the body of things. So again, the Yud case, the head, and the Vav case, the body. And here, Amalek is doing what he does. He cuts off the head from the body. It's yet another hint that Amalek is this power that causes doubt, that cuts off your head, that wants you only to have Yud and He and not have Vav and He. So when I was 
many, many years ago, I was in the university. And how do you call the university in general? You call it academia, right? The academia. And academia, if you write it in Hebrew, and you can split it into the words akadem yudke. I shall advance yudke, only yudke. The ac academia is all about, it's all about, I just want to have your head pumped up with a lot of thoughts, but God forbid you should take those ideas and live them to their fullest. It should only be ideas. If you're taking them too seriously existentially, that's a, a big problem academically. Then you become subjective, and then you're not a good researcher. And many years ago, so when I was in the university, I had this one day, this vision. On your way to tshuva, when you're young, then sometimes you can get things like visions. I don't get them anymore, Baruch Hashem. But when I was young, I got all these all these kinds of you know help, help on the way, pushes from above. And and one of them was that I was walking in the university, and suddenly I had this vision. And the vision was that Sunday I saw all the people, the students, the teachers, everyone. I suddenly imagined them as bodiless heads, floating in the air, bobbing in the air, just heads, no bodies, no hearts. And God forbid, they all had bodies and hearts, but the, it was like a reflection of what academia, what the academic world does to you, in a way. It, I felt that this is where it's, it's going. It's going in a way that your head is, is overworking, but you're disconnected in a very deep way from your bodies, your feelings, your, uh, where are you coming from. And, and one of the things that I really liked about my, uh, my wife when I first met her, and we were talking, then she said that it's, one of the things she liked doing in the university the most is asking people what their uh, research topic is. And they all tell you, and then you ask them why they chose their topic, and they give you all kinds of answers. But her, she, one of her hobbies was to try and figure out really why they're choosing their research topics. <laughs> Not just because of the reasons that they give, but why that particular personality with that particular history, what's aching them, what's bothering them. And, and, and this is a deeper explanation for where they're looking. But the, it's not the explanation they would give, usually. So um, anyway, this is, again, going back to, to Amalek. Amalek wants you to go to university and have a lot of thoughts and ideas, but, you know, don't, but don't become religious or don't, uh, don't translate those ideas into actual practice. That's, that's weird. That's frightening. Then you're becoming one of those crazy people. And you, have to, you, can, you can only intellectualize about things. So... We can even give yet another hint, the final one. This is, this is interesting for people who like the looking at letters. In the scroll of Esther, there are four Amalekites. Who are the four Amalekites? So first, there's Amalek himself, he's mentioned. And then there's Haman. And then there's the ancestor of Haman. His name is Agag, Haman Ha'agagi, it says, among other things. And finally, there's Charvona. Charvona He's also an Amalekite, but he's a good Amalekite. He's an Amalekite who betrays Haman, and he, he helps in the end, comes at the end of the scroll, and says that, uh, that he reminds Achashverosh that, uh, that uh, Haman built the, built the big tree, the big pole to hang Mordechai from, and maybe he should be hung on the same pole, and he helps out, and then we sing in Purim, Charvona Zachor Letov, we... we, we he's, kindly remembered by us. Now, if you take the first letter of each of these names, so you have the Ein of Amalek, and the He of Haman, and the Aleph of Hagag, and the Chet of Charvona. What do these four letters have in common? 
What are the four letters of Ein Hei Chet Aleph have in common? They're coming from the throat. Exactly. They're all the four throaty letters. The Hebrew letters, the 22 letters, they're divided into five groups according to the part of the mouth that, that we use, that we mainly use to say them with. So there's the, the, the throat and the palate and the teeth and the lips. And the throaty letters are exactly these four and only these four. And so this is perfect. Amalek goes for the throat. He wants to choke you. It's throaty letters. You can imagine, you, can, you say them, you go, it's, it's like a, you start coughing, you say them too much. And he wants to throttle you and again cut your cut off the higher part from the, from the lower part. So, so Amalek is doubt. Now, we all know this distinction between atheists and agnostics. An atheist is someone who says, I don't believe in God, I believe there's no such thing as a God, and it's all nonsense, it doesn't exist, and I'm firm in my assertion that God doesn't exist. An agnostic, on the other hand, it's someone who says, I don't know, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't exist, I don't know, and I'm suspending my belief, I'm suspending my disbelief, and I don't know. Now, you would think that an atheist is something, from a religious perspective, it's worse than an agnostic, uh, but it's well known that it doesn't work that way. Atheists are closer to theists, to believers, because they believe in something. They believe in the opposite of what the, religious, the believers believe, but they believe in something. And they, they believe that there is truth, and you can get onto the truth. And it's in, much easier, in fact, for an atheist to become a theist than it is for an agnostic to become a theist. Because the agnostic, because it's more uh, modest, and because it's, uh, it's less, it's not, he's undecided, then uh, it's, it's the hardest to get out of. Now, in a way, we can say that Amalek is an agnostic. He's not an atheist, he's an agnostic. Who are the atheists, by the way? We have two holidays in the Jewish calendar that are not from the written Torah. They came in via history, and they're celebrated during the winter. So the, historically, the first one, but it comes later in the year, is Purim, and the other one that historically came later, but it's celebrated early in the, month, in the year, is Hanukkah. Hanukkah is, we're fighting the Greeks, and in, in, uh, in Purim, we're fighting the Amalekites. The Greeks were atheists in a deep way because they said that the world was never created. They have a kind of God. It's the God of the, of the intellect. It's the Logos. But it's, uh, they'd say that he, he's not a personal God. And go, this, this claim that he's not a personal God goes together with, the, with their saying that he never created the world. The world always existed since time immemorial. And he's just designing it or... He just, he does all the, the math and the architecture of it. And uh, so Hanukkah is, is like something against atheism. But Purim is against agnosticism. It's against the, the people who say that you don't know, you can't know, but ultimately you're left in the same place. You're left empty-handed in terms of what fills your, your, your soul. Nothing fills your soul. We can say that the believer hangs a picture on it, the wall of a beautiful you know, earth and heaven and the divine light coming into the world and the world is created. He believes in this, that there's a creation and a creator and he hangs this picture and it fills him with inspiration. And the atheists, they hang a picture of like a black canvas. They're saying there's nothing there. It's all meaningless. It's stark, dark, empty universe. 
And the, the agnostic, he doesn't hang any picture. He only unhangs all the pictures, says, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But ultimately, he's also staring at something blank, just like the atheist, except he thinks that he doesn't believe in anything. He also ends up believing in something, but he, he pretends not to believe in anything. So it's something very insidious. And very, so this is, this is Amalek. This is just to sum up the idea that, that Amalek is doubt. And so again, it seems to be that the, what we need to do in Adar is a very simple thing. We need to fight Amalek. Amalek is safek. Amalek is doubt. So just like we are commanded to eradicate all memory of Amalek, you shall eradicate all memory of Amalek from under the, uh, the sky, then, uh, then that's it. So let's fight doubts. But like we said before, doubts have a tendency of coming back. And indeed, the story of Amalek is not so simple. We think it's simple. We think it's the epitome of evil, something so evil that it needs to be to- totally eradicated. But if you go deeper into the story, there's a lot of details that seem to undermine this whole image of what Amalek is and of how we're we're supposed to fight Amalek. There's a lot of details that, that undermine this. So we'll start with the, with the first one. The first one is that although we're told, that's in the commandment itself. The commandment is, And then what does it say afterwards? You shall not forget. And there's another commandment. So we're told to eradicate all memory of Amalek, but we're also told don't forget Amalek and remember Amalek. So are we supposed to forget Amalek, or are we not supposed to forget Amalek? Are we supposed to eradicate all memory of Amalek, or are we supposed to memorize the story of Amalek? We're told the same thing, like in, 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 one, in, in almost one verse, or in one verse, it goes together. That we need to forget about him, and we need to remember him. How, does this, how, did we, how is this possible? If we wanted to forget him, we could just forget about him, that he wouldn't be... It wouldn't be written down. It would be written down, but it wouldn't tell you specifically to remember. So that's the first thing. The second, is, the thic- the second thing is that when you look at the story of how Yoshua fought Amalek, how did that war take place? They met Amalek and then they split. There was a spiritual war and a physical war. The spiritual war was that Moshe, the hill, and started raising his hands and he was helped by two other people, and that spiritually helped the Jewish people on the ground win the war, and on the ground it was Yehoshua leading the, fort, leading the, the, the army against the Amalekite army. But then there are two things here that are very strange. The one is that the, the verb used for the victory, for the way Yehoshua won the war, it's a singular verb, it only appears in this story. And there are many stories of battles and wars in the, in the Tanakh, but this word is Vayachalosh Yehoshua, which means Yehoshua weakened Amalek. He didn't just win over them, he weakened them. And Rashi says that he only killed the strong ones and he left the weak ones alive. He weakened them, he left them, he didn't, he didn't eradicate them. He could have, he could have killed all of them. That's what happens in other wars in the Tanakh, very often, that the war is won when you kill everyone. But here he only weakened them. Why? If it's such a nemesis, such a, you know, devout mortal enemy, then a mortal enemy means that it's called mortal enemy because it's either he kills you or you kill him. So why not kill all of them? And the other mysterious thing is that if Moshe is on the hill and in order to help 
the Jewish people win, he raises his hands in the skies. If you, if you go someplace and you see a person raising his arms, what's the first thing that comes into your head? Surrender. He's, they're surrendering. They're giving up. They say, I give up. In Hebrew, you even, one of the, the phrases for giving up is, I raise my hands. And I give up. And Merimedaim is, I give up. I raise my hands. And it's, a, it's, like the, it's the white flag and the raising of the hands. These are two symbols, international, universal, eternal symbols of surrender. So there's, everything is so strange. We have to forget Amalek and then we remember him. We, we, we were supposed to kill him, but then we're only, we weaken him and we're supposed to win, but we're, we have this gesture of surrender. No, it, no it, that's what you, it looks like Yeshua's decision. Then, and then afterwards it says, then, God says that I shall eradicate. But it's so strange. All this is weird. And, and the final most interesting tidbit, historical tidbit, is where is Amalek coming from? Who was the original, before it was a nation, it was a person. There was one person called Amalek. Who was he? Is he some distant enemy? Is he, the, the main enemies we have in the Tanakh are the Canaanites, the Egyptians. They're all descendants of Ham from Noah. It's very, it's like totally different area of, of, of humankind. Is Amalek coming from there? No. Is he coming from Yefet, the other big branch? No. He's coming from, he's a Semite. And, and in fact, he's a descendant of Abraham and Yitzhak. If you look at the story, Amalek is fifth generation from Abraham. Abraham gives birth to Yitzchak, of course. Yitzchak has twins. And if you go with the, the bad twin, you go with Esav, Esav has a son called Eliphaz. So Eliphaz now is the fourth generation from Abraham. And Eliphaz marries a woman called Timna, and, and she gives birth to Amalek. So he's a descendant of not only Abraham, but also Yitzchak. He's a distant relative. He's, he's not so far away from us. And so this becomes even more interesting. And now it becomes even more interesting than that. Why? Because we're told something very, very interesting about his mother. It says that his mother was an Edomite princess. She was royalty. She was an important woman. And she really desperately wanted to convert. She really wanted, she had a huge admiration for for Abraham and for his descendants. And she came to Yaakov and she asked him to, uh, to convert her and marry her. And he didn't agree. He says, I can't, for some reason. We don't know why, but he pushed her away. And then she said, well, I still prefer to be a maidservant or a concubine to someone from this family than I would than I than being a princess in my own nation. And she went to the Yaakov's twin brother, Esav, to his son, Eliphaz, and she married his son. She was his concubine. She wasn't even his wife, she was his Pilegish. And then she gave birth to Amalek. And the what Chazal are insinuating here or suggesting is that had Yaakov converted her and married her, Amalek wouldn't have been born. Amalek was born because she was pushed away. This is a recurring motif in our tradition that we say that all our greatest enemies, they came from us. Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed the first temple, he was coming from King Solomon and 
and the Egyptian princess that he married on the same day that he uh, that he founded the, the that he inaugurated the, the first temple. And it's every time we say that it's really because we sinned in some way, or we pushed someone away. Christianity came because because Jesus was one of the students, but he was pushed away, so he was bitter, and he went and founded his own religion. And we keep saying this. And this is an, another amazing version of this, uh, of this motif, that Timna was this woman and who was full of admiration for the Jewish people, and she really wanted to convert, but she was pushed away, and then Amalek was born, and, and this calamity came upon us. And, and, and so we can say two things. We can either say, so, oh, if he had converted her, Amalek wouldn't have been born. We can also say something more interesting. If he had he converted her, Amalek would have been born a Jew. Amalek would have been, Amalek would have been born, but he would have been a, a positive force among us. So all these things suggest that the story with Amalek is not so simple. He's not the pure, evil kind of type that we're raised to believe, that we're led to believe. And fighting him is not total eradication, because we need to remember him, and we only weaken him, and we raise our hands, meaning we're letting him win a little bit. And his mother was, came with the best of intentions, wanting to join us, but we pushed her away. And we can add just one final detail. It says that for, in some mysterious way, we know that Haman, Haman from the Scroll of Esther, and all of his ten children were all hung at the end of the scroll. But somehow someone escaped because, because we have a source that says that the descendants of Haman are rabbis in Bnei Brak. They teach Torah in Bnei Brak. So they're, 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 they're fulfilling their great-grandmother's dream, Timna, to convert to, convert to the Jewish people. They're, so in every direction, everywhere we're looking, little, little you know, bits of the, of, we have this picture, but it, 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 it what, what's the word? It's mitkalef, it's um, peeling off. The portrait, the, the classic portrait of Avamelech is peeling off in all corners of the canvas. And another more nuanced and more intricate and more surprising portrait emerges from beneath this, the first layer that peels off. So what do we do with all of this? So, it turns out that if you open uh, the writings of the Arizal, the greatest Kabbalist, 16th century Rabbi Isaac of Luria, he says something fascinating. He says that we have the, in Kabbalah the ten sefirot, the ten sefirot are the ten powers of the soul. The first and highest one is called Keter, which means crown. It suggests what we call the superconscious, the root of the soul, just like the crown is above our heads. The sphere of Keter is, is, signifies the surrounding life. It's called the, the highest and deepest, innermost level of the soul. And that's where what resides, the highest thing that resides there is emuna, the power of faith, the power of being able to, to reach Hashem and touch Hashem and be connected to Hashem. That's there. But then the Ariza says there's something else there also. Right next to the emuna on the highest level of the crown. He says there are five doubts. They're inseparable from emunah, from faith. Faith is like this queen 
but she's walking around with five sort of maidservants or, or servants, and there are spikot, doubts. So maybe the emuna is like the, the crown, but all, all crowns have a lot of diamonds. There's the main jewel, but there's a, a lot of other diamonds. So we can imagine the kind of big, gem, beautiful jewel of emuna, but then it's surrounded by like five little diamonds that are doubts. Now the reason he goes for five is, as is often the case with the Kabbalah of the Ari, it's because um, uh, it's something very mathematical. It's about combinations of letters, it's about all kinds of little structures going into one another. And that's not for us, that's for Kabbalists. But we're trying to get the Hasidut out of it. We're trying to get a sense of what it means in our own hearts and souls. And then we can, we can give the following explanation. This is the Hasidic explanation. The Hasidic explanation is that the reason it's five is because if you take Amalek, who is the, the, the manifestation of negative doubt, the destructive, undermining kind of doubt that topples your house of cards every time you want to build it and ruins every decision, ruins every plan. And if you raise, it, raise him up, go back to the ancestry until you reach faith, who is the emblem of faith, the, the person representing faith more than anyone else in the Torah, it's Abraham. Then you get five generations. You need to bring him, it's not enough to bring him back to Yitzchak. You have to bring him all the way back to Abraham. Because Abraham is Rosh Kol Ma'aminim, the first believer, the head of all believers, the, the, the one who taught us how to believe in Hashem. So Abraham is a Munna, and Amalek is Safek, and altogether it's five generations. But it, it, it's even more beautiful. So I said before, some people really like Gematrias, some people don't like Gematrias, but this is one of the most amazing Gematrias that usually is one of the things that causes people who don't like Gematrias to start like Gematrias is if you take the five names of all these, of this lineage, Avraham, Yitzchak, Esav, Eliphaz, Amalek, all together, it's a round number, it's 1,200. Avraham, Yitzchak, Esav, Eliphaz, Amalek. It's five times Amalek. So the mean you put them all together, you divide it back into five, so you get Amalek. So it's Amalek, 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 Amalek. Somehow it's all Amalek. Maybe I, I hoped it would all be Avraham. But it's all Amalek, which also means it's, it's five times Safek. Five doubts, five Sfekot. Just like the Ari says that we have in the crown. So it's, again, the numerical value is five times Safek or five times Amalek, the same thing. Safek, 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 Safek. So this is very interesting. So what does it all mean? It means that in some mysterious way, all this, beginning with Emunah, going all to, back to Safek, we thought that Safek was something negative. But if you go all the way back to Emunah, it all becomes Sfekot, but good Sfekot. Why does Emunah go together with Sfekot? Because Emunah is not knowledge. Knowledge is certainty. Emunah is always in something that there's the possibility to disbelieve it, to doubt it. It's, if I believe in something, it means that it's inherently uncertain. That's the beauty of Emunah. That's the power of Emunah. That's the, 
that, that's, what's not, that's what's beautiful and, and, and amazing about it, is that it, it goes with uncertainty. If I was certain about something, then I it wouldn't need emuna, it would just be knowledge. So let's put it this way, if I would win, if I would win um, over Amalek and totally eradicate Amalek, then I would, I would, it would sort of demean or take down Emuna, and it would turn it all, if I would have no doubt, if let's say it would have completely killed Amalek, not weakened him, and not convert him, and not give, him, not give up to him, not do anything, just uh, totally eradicate the power of Safek from our hearts, then that, that would imply that we only want to have absolute certain knowledge. And that would dethrone, that would dim the light of the crown and would turn emunah into knowledge. But emunah is not knowledge. Emunah is something higher. Emunah is when I don't have the answers and I'm not sure. And it goes together with uncertainty. That's how it is. If I get rid of doubts, I get rid of emunah. If I want to have emunah, it goes together with having some doubts. So we can now have a new understanding of what it means that Moshe raised his arms. It's, it's, it's basically, it's, it's coming to Amalek. Instead of finding Amalek and pushing away the doubt, right, again, I have a doubt, and I can say, go away, doubt. I don't want to have you. I want to push you away. I don't want anything to do with you. So it would keep coming back, and because that would mean that I, I'm trying to strive at absolute knowledge and having no doubts. That's not how it is. Doubts are good. Doubts are normal. Doubts are human. Doubts go along with Emunah. So the gesture should be, you know what, Amalek? You're right. I, I give up. I don't know for sure. You keep telling me, do you know for sure? Are you absolutely sure? So if I'm fighting you, I say, yeah, I am absolutely sure. I do know for certain. No, it won't work because you don't know and you're not sure. But if you say, in Hebrew it rhymes, it's funny, it's Amalek, Atatzadek. Amalek, you're right. I give up. I don't have the absolute knowledge. I don't have the absolute, absolute truth. And I, uh, I, I don't know for sure, but I believe. And this gesture of raising the arms, it's really a way of bypassing the intellect that has become so embroiled with this battle, with the, riddled with doubts. And I reach all the way up to the crown, to emunah. I create a kind of channel to bring the light of emunah. And it goes with giving up on knowing. Amalek tries to convince you that you're supposed to know for certain. It's a psychological destructive force that con- tries to convince you that you're supposed to have absolute knowledge of something, and you're not. So, uh, so the, uh, the, you win Amalek by giving up. It's this paradox that you win by saying, I lose, <laughs> I give up, I don't have certain knowledge. And then Amalek stays with you. He goes on nagging and bothering you and telling you that maybe you should give up. But you can also go on yourself and you can proceed to Mount Sinai and to marriage and to choosing what you want to do with your life, and, and to make choices, and, you, and then you overcome doubts by acknowledging the fact that they, they're there anyway, and they're going to be there anyway, and you can't get rid of them. The only way to come close to getting rid of them is acknowledging the fact that you can't get rid of them, that they're part of you, and they're here to stay. And then Amalek becomes suddenly a positive force within you. He becomes this power of doubt, because you're able to use it against itself. You doubt, doubt itself. You doubt 
where doubt is trying to convince you that you're supposed to have absolute knowledge, and you, you push that away. So, the, it's basically, we can say, I call this class the benefit, of the, the benefit of the doubt, that you can, doubt has its benefits. You can also call it room for doubt. There, there is room for doubt. Right? Usually it's said, there's room for doubt, you can doubt it. But here we actually want to make room for doubt. We want to give doubt some, some uh, place within us. And, uh, and this is the deeper level of this whole battle with, with Amalek. And this is the explanation for all these paradoxical things, that we kill him, but we keep him alive, and we, we're supposed to eradicate him, but we're also supposed to convert him, and it all started with the mother going to be part of us. And we can even give, we can now go finish the two circles, and then the last part of the class is we want to detail the five doubts. We want to de- detail what they are. So just a second. So just two things. One is that we started with en There's no joy like the undoing of doubt. But now we can give a totally new interpretation for this. En The new interpretation becomes there's no joy like realizing that it's mutal to have doubts. It's allowed to have doubts. Hataratasfekot means that the sfekot become allowed. It's not asur. It's not forbidden. It's something so calming. So it's such a relief. It's such a relief that I'm being told by the Torah because otherwise I would feel guilty that I have doubts or I would feel that I need to get rid of them or something is wrong with me maybe that I have, that I'm filled with doubt. But if I, if I tell myself uh, it's okay to have doubts, it's mutar to have doubts, then it becomes a possibility that I may actually get rid of the doubts because I acknowledge them, I accept that they're part of me, and then they're weakened, and then I can go on in life. I weak, like you can get rid of them, but you can weaken them. You can weaken them by acknowledging that they're there, and it's okay, and it's normal, and it's healthy. And, and every important decision in life is not based on absolute knowledge. It's based on a leap of faith, and it's called a leap of faith because there's a chasm of doubt that you have to leap over, so they, they go together. So you acknowledge doubts, and you accept them, and it's okay, it's mutal, it's allowed to have doubts, and then you can actually untie them, undo them, and get rid of them. So I want to add something, and then we, we're going to the last bit, which is trying to figure out what the five doubts are. Very, that's the most beautiful thing. So just before this, just one thing to sort of round this, the, everything we said so far. We said that the mother of Amalek, her name was Timna. Timna, is, it, it's written with an ayn in the end. It's, it's an interesting name. And it seems to come from the Hebrew root of avoiding or avoidable or, or trying to steer and clear from something, right? It's to avoid something. And her name is Timna. And now something interesting about this. In medieval times, when there were Jewish philosophers and they were trying to take some ideas from Greek philosophy and put it into Jewish thinking, like Maimonides and, and other Jewish philosophers, then they were looking for Hebrew words for all kinds of uh, terms. And one of the, word, the terms that they were looking for Hebrew, a Hebrew word for it was paradox. Paradox is Greek for a contradicting faith or a contradicting belief. Dox, doxa is belief or thought, and para is going against, like parachute or parasol. And paradox is like a, a thought that goes into it against itself. Yeah, in Hebrew it's tira, yeah. But they had another 
another word in, the, in, in medieval literature, they use the term nimna'ot. Nimna'ot is something inherently impossible or paradoxical. Something that's inherently impossible. That's a nimna'ot. That's, in, old, in old books you can see this term. And now, so we can say the following. Timna, the mother of Amalek, represents something paradoxical. Why did Yaakov push her away? Because he was only, that was the foundations of, the, of Judaism. And at that stage, you can't have paradoxes. Things have to be simple, they have to be straightforward. It's almost like when you're raising a child, then you can't say one thing and the opposite. For an adult, you can say, and that's very intriguing and interesting, and it becomes complex. But for a child, you need to have simple truths, straightforward truths. And then when they're older, they can start dealing with paradoxes. And it was the same with Yaakov. Yaakov said, Timna, you're a paradoxical person, and we can't convert you for the time being, even if you really want to. Because it's strange. If someone really wants to convert, and they mean well, and they're truthful, then you need to convert them. It's wrong not to convert them. But here, at that time, he said, we can't convert you. And what happens when you push away paradoxes, when you're not willing to accept the fact that some things in life are paradoxical, and, and they... So Amalek is born... <laughs> If you want to have absolute certainty, you want things to be crystal clear, and so you can do that. But the price is that this entity called Amalek will be born and will haunt you on and on until you embrace paradox. If when we convert Timna, then Amalek will be reborn as a Jew that is reborn as an agent of faith. He will still be the gematria of Safek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's something beautiful. So Yaakov, he, his job apparently was to push away Timna, to push away paradox, to, to have faith that's built in a foundation of certainty and knowledge. But, it now, but, 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 the, but the price is, is that we're, we're haunted by this doubts all the time because we, they're really trying to say, they're begging Amalek with all his cruelty. is really continuing the... the, the the request of his mother, convert me, accept me. Take me as part of your world of emunah. You, I, it's enough that you have this childish uh, faith world in which everything is crystal clear and simple and, and organized. You need to mature. And mature faith means that you understand that there's doubts, that things are not absolutely proven and doubts are part of... And just imagine the release of this where people growing up Jewish and they have questions, and people tell them, no, the questions are wrong, or the questions, you need, you need to work against the questions. You need to have perfect faith and perfect emunah. What happens if you told them that, in, that emunah is inherently doubtful, and that it's okay to have doubts, and it's okay to question things, and it's part of the, part of the whole process. So this is accepting timunah to the fold of, of Yadut, of Judaism, converting her, and then Amalek can be reborn, and then, and then Safek and Emunah can work together in the, in the head. So now we're left with one question, which is, so the five doubts, they're connected to Avraham, Yitzchak, Esav, Eliphaz, Amalek. So what could they be? So you say what? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you need to have doubts in your own beliefs in order to embrace doubts. No, it means that it, it, the, the way... So I said two interpretations for En Simchaka Tarat One, the simple one, is the joy is in 
getting rid of doubts. The other one was the joy is it's okay to have doubts. The idea is that the second interpretation enables you to get to the first interpretation in a better way. I want to get rid of doubts. I don't want to live in a, a, a life that's riddled with doubts and that I keep stopping short of everything I do. I want to overcome doubts. That's a good thing. I want to overcome them. But the only way to overcome them is to a little bit accept them. That's the thing that I'm supposed to have. It's, it's understanding that it's not wrong, it's not warped, it's not because I'm not strong enough in my emuna that I even have them. It's the most normal thing in the world to have them. And it, it can't be that I don't have them. You can't have emuna without them. And then you can overcome them. Then they, can be, they, can, they become weaker and smaller a little bit. They get into proportion. I, I get that. I get whatever. I get how you can have joy by not being victim of the doubt. I get what you're saying. But I'm also saying when there is a doubt, there is a conflict in the decision making. How do you make a choice? That how do you make the choice? Because it's it, the reason you you have you have that you have to have a belief like a Yaakov. This is the right thing to do. Yeah, but then, but then Amalek will come and, uh, and attack you. So you don't know. That's the thing. You don't know. You have to have faith in a certain option. You you gather all the evidence. Okay. You go deeper into yourself. You see what you're supposed. You, you try and figure out what it is you're supposed to do. And even after all of that, and all the research, and all the deep thought, and all the introspection, and all the prayers you still won't have an absolute answer and you're going with the doubt past the chasm of doubt. Thank you. That's, that's, what I mean. that's the whole point. Thank you. If you expect that you're going to have certain answers in your life choices, then you won't be able to make a choice. And, and if you imagine that you have a certain answer, then oh no, then it's going to haunt you. On the other side, you'll get married and then you say, oh no, I made a terrible mistake because you thought... You had the absolute answer. You don't. There's always room for doubt, and there's always an, and and that's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is that you don't know, and that's the adventure of life, and that's the, and that's the heroism of life, and 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 that's the real journey of faith through the ocean of uncertainty of life, and the uncertainty is part of the journey. So now what I'm, we're going to do now we're going to do this briefly because it's late and you're tired and uh, and you want to go home, but. But it's beautiful and it'll be worth it. it was, this was a Purim class given by Rabbi Ginsburg a few years ago, in which he went into the, so what are the five doubts? Again, there's a Kabbalistic, complex, mathematical answer, but we want to understand the Hasidic, the Hasidus of it, and that's what he did. And, and he constructed this around the five figures, because we, the gematria of five times Safek is the five names of Abraham, Yitzchak, Esav, Elifaz, Amalek. So we can look at the, at, the, at the people, at Abraham, at Yitzchak, and these five people, and try and, and imagine what were the doubts that they were dealing with. And there's a little bit of difference between the first two and the last three, because the first two are part of the Hebrew lineage, Abraham and Yitzchak, they're two of the fathers. But from the third one, it starts branching off into the negative realm so the two first doubts are maybe more resolved, and the last three doubts are harder to resolve. But either way, we, we, we can have suddenly a list or an understanding of what the five doubts are. So let's start. Mm-hmm. So Abraham. Abraham 
is the first believer. He believes in Hashem. Hashem created the world. We, we, there's a nice hint that says that in the, the, the opening of the second story of creation, it says, This is the story of the heaven and the earth when they were created. And the, that word for when they were created is the same letters as Abraham. Be'Avraham. The explanation given is that it, the world was created with the power of, of love and, and loving kindness, with chesed, the power of Abraham, or that it was created so that one day this person, Abraham, will come along and, and then it will justify the creation of the world. Either way, there's a deep connection between Abraham and creation. The very verb, bara, is included in the name Abraham. So Abraham manifests the doubt in a creator. The very, that, that was his, his big leap, is that he looked at the world and he says there must be a creator. He started with doubt. He started with what's behind this. And we talked about the Greeks who said no one created the world. The world always existed. And Abraham is standing on the other bank of the river of everyone else who say there's only these forces of nature that are operating nature, which means there's only nature. And, and, and so there's a, a deep state of doubt regarding there being a creator to the world. And that's the most basic and, and foundational doubt that people have up to this day. Is there God? Maybe there isn't a God. And this doubt is the most basic doubt, and Abraham overcomes this doubt. And he overcomes this doubt by realizing that, um, that you need to look at the world and try and... You don't get a clear picture. It's not going to be an idol. It's not going to be something that you can solidly point to. It means listening and, 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 and looking behind the sun and behind the moon and behind creation. And then you sort of realize that there must be a creator. But it's not empirical. It's not evident. It's something you have to go beyond what you see. So he overcame the first doubt, which is doubt, is there a creator or not? That's Abraham's first doubt, main, main doubt that we have. The second is Yitzchak. What could be the second doubt? Let's say we overcome, we've over, we've, we have overcome the first doubt. Okay, so there is a God. So what's the second thing people, many people would say? Okay, so I believe there is a God, but he doesn't really care about human beings. He's not in the details. Or in other words, there's no... There's no divine providence over everything that's going on here. This becomes the second doubt. And this is Yitzchak. Why is this Yitzchak? Yitzchak, you can see very clearly in the way he lives, is that he trusts the Hashgacha. He's taken up and he says, now it's time for you to be slaughtered. He says, okay, so I'm here and there's an altar and I'm being said, that must be what's going on. So... What's going on? There's, it must be Ashgacha Pratit. Oh, there's suddenly a lamb, and the lamb is supposed to replace me. Okay, so there's Ashgacha Pratit. And I'm going to daven, I'm going to pray that I get a wife. I, I pray that I get a wife. Oh, by Ashgacha Pratit, I get a wife. It comes to me at the moment that I'm praying. That's what happens in his story. Yitzchak is praying, and the slave of uh, the servant of Abraham is coming with his wife at the exact same moment by Ashgacha Pratit. He trusts in Ashgacha Pratit. He even, uh, when he's unsure if it's Yaakov or Esav speaking to him, then he says, okay, so I call, call Yaakov, so that's the voice that I'm hearing right now, so I'm going with that. And he goes with the Ashgacha Pratit. So Yitzchak is, in many ways, he, he is the son of the, the man of faith. And so when you have faith, then you, when faith is taken for granted, 
for you, then the next step is to say, okay, so everything is, is from above. So he, he doesn't have doubt. He overcame the doubt that there is no divine providence. So Yitzchak becomes divine providence. Now the next one, here, we would hope it would go with Yaakov, but it doesn't go with Yaakov, because we're all leading to Amalek. It becomes a sav. Suddenly we have a split. And the doubts are moving in a direction that are not resolved so easily. And we're going to give three examples of people who have not overcome these doubts. But we still need to figure out what these doubts are. So when we come to the generation of Yaakov and Esav, then the, the new doubt, the next doubt, becomes, okay, so there is a God and there is providence, or the world, that's how it operates, but we don't necessarily have free will. That becomes the third doubt. Choice. Is there choice? Do we have a choice? Does Hashem have a choice? The fact that Yaakov was chosen over Esav means that this generation is all about choice. So also Abraham was chosen, Yitzchak was chosen, but Yaakov is called Bechir Ha'avod, the most chosen of all. And also, it wasn't that big of a choice with Abraham. Abraham was the only person in his generation who figured out that Hashem exists. Yitzchak and Ishmael, they came from totally different mothers. One was from the actual, from the, the wife of Abraham, one was from the maidservant. So it's not that big of a choice. But with Esav and Yaakov, they're coming from the same father and same mother, and they're twins, it's much more of a choice. And Yaakov is chosen. Yaakov asher bachar ya. I think that's how it goes. That, so the choice and Yaakov go together very much with one another. And Esav is here the one who is not chosen. And, and it goes along with him being a fatalist. He says, I don't care about being the elder child or having the obligation of the firstborn. I'm going to sell it to you for soup, for lentil soup, because I'm a fate, because I'm going to die anyway. There's something fatalistic about him. You know, whatever happens, happens, and we don't really have a choice in the matter. And he's very much a man of this world. And if you're a man of this world, then you feel that it's all sort of deterministic. And, and you can't, so he fails to overcome the third doubt, which is doubt, is there free will or is there no free will? Do we have a choice or we don't have a choice? Yaakov has the, the challenge of overcoming that doubt. So now we get to Eliphaz. Eliphaz, the son of Esav. We hardly know anything about him. But according to Chazal, he reappears later on in the Tanakh. So he's barely mentioned. He's born to Esav. We know that he married Tina. We know that he fathered Amalek. But we don't know anything about him. So where does he come back into the story? So there is a person called Eliphaz in the story of Job. In the book of Job, Eov. Eov suffers from the terrible things that happened to him. And then he, uh, he doesn't understand what's going on because he never sinned. He didn't do anything bad. So we say, if I didn't sin, why am I getting all these terrible torments and tortures? And then he's visited by three friends. And the first friend, his name is Eliphaz. So you could think it's someone else, but Chazal say, no, it's the same Eliphaz. The same Eliphaz, the son of Esav. He's the first of the three friends of, of um Eov. And now what's the story of Eov? The story of Eov becomes, which doubt is in the background here? It's the doubt, is there reward and punishment? Reward and punishment is a fourth existential doubt that people are, are struggling with. 
And more specifically, how come bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? You see a lot of bad people that are living to a ripe old age and, uh, and, and they have a beautiful life. And you see a lot of very righteous people and they have terrible lives. And sometimes they, they, they die for no reason or they die very young. And this is a very deep existential doubt that we all have. This is what Eov is struggling with. Now this is interesting, this one. Because on the surface, Eliphaz is a believer. And the doubter is Eov. Eov is saying, I don't understand. Hashem, give me answers. I don't understand. I didn't sin. And so why is this happening to me? There's no reason. And Eliphaz, and the, the others follow, but Eliphaz is the first. He says, no, no, Eov, you're wrong. God is perfectly just. And there's reward and punishment for everything. And if you have these sufferings and these illnesses and all the people that died in your family and all this, that means that you sinned. It's proof that you sinned. So, so but we said that, if, that Esav, Rifaz, and Amalek are negative examples of these doubts. But the explanation is that it's not true. The way Rifaz perceives it, it's a very simplistic interpretation of reward and punishment, of the whole topic of reward and punishment. Because we know that if something, that it's true that God rewards with good things for good, for good deeds and with bad things for bad deeds. But we also know that it, it doesn't follow a simple math. And that the fact that something bad happens to you does absolutely not prove that you sinned. Because there are so many ways of going about it. One way that Rashi says, for example, that sometimes good things happen to bad people because Hashem wants to, every bad person has a little bit of good that he did. So in this life, Hashem wants to uh, give them all the rewards that he needs so that they can get their punishment in the afterlife. And the same goes for bad things to good people. They, they, even the good people have a little bit of sins. Every righteous man has some faults. So Hashem gets rid of all the punishments very quickly in this world, and then He gives them endless rewards. That's one explanation. Another explanation is that sometimes bad things that happen to you are not punishments at all. They're, they're hidden good. They're blessings that are very, very high, and blessings that are very high, they come to the world in negative form, and, but then only later do you realize that they were for, for your benefit. That you, you go through trials and tribulations, and you suffer, so what Eliphaz said is absolutely wrong. The fact that you're suffering does not prove that you sinned. It could be that Hashem is preparing you for something greater, that this is a kind of boon, but it's a boon that you don't understand and it appears better, the experience it is that. Another explanation is that sometimes it doesn't, it, 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 you have to add reincarnations to the story. Sometimes something bad happens to you because it rectifies something negative from your previous life. And, and the only, and the reward you're going to get is in another life. So there's so many ways to go about this. It's a very, very simplistic, linear uh, uh, perception of, of, of reward and punishment that Eliphaz represents, saying if, you, if you're suffering, it means you sinned. Look close, uh, soul search yourself more closely, Eov, and find your sins because they have to be there. That's, that becomes a very poor way of overcoming the doubt. A deeper way of overcoming the doubt is, is really ste stepping backwards and saying, I, I, I only believe, I don't know what the details, I believe that Hashem is, that everything is for the best. The way God is, is orchestrating everything, it's all for the best, but I don't expect to have a simple answer to all the details. I don't know why this tragedy happened to this 
poor person and didn't deserve it. And I don't know why that evil man is, I don't know, but I believe that if, you, we, if we would see the whole picture, then we would understand, but I don't expect to have this simple. So Eliphaz is the is fourth generation, and it's doubt, and which he didn't overcome in a good way, he overcame in a very poor way, the doubt of, are, is there reward and punishment? He couldn't deal with the uncertainty. Hmm? He couldn't deal with the uncertainty. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And finally, we get to Amalek himself. And what is the fifth doubt? The fifth doubt is that, okay, so there's a God and there's, and there's providence and there's a, a freedom of choice and there's even reward and punishment. But still, this reward and punishment is maybe in the afterlife or maybe in... Uh, in another incarnation, or maybe it's in some mysterious way that we don't understand that the, the bad thing that happens is really good, whatever. But ultimately, this world, this world, the world that we're living in, what we're going through this world, Amalek says it's all pointless. There's no purpose. This is the fifth and final doubt. A little bit. So maybe Kohelet is trying to rectify. It becomes... There is no purpose to things. You, it's going nowhere. And there's no purpose to living this life. Even if you're telling me that the bad things are really for the good and the really good things are hidden, I still feel that's why Amalek is trying to prevent you from advancing and fulfilling your purpose in life. That's why he attacks you just before Mount Sinai, just before the return of the, of, the, of, the, of the Jews to Eretz Israel from the Babylonian exile. He attacks you just before you're fulfilling your purpose, and he says there's no purpose, and you're just, you just stay with me here in the desert, and we're going to have a lot of fun making fun of everyone who thinks that there's purpose to something. And, and we'll be here, the cynical, you know, pair at the balcony, like in the Muppets, and we're going to make fun of everything, and we think it's all purposeless. And, uh, of course, it, th this is the most, in many ways, the harshest of all doubts. But we need to continue what Avraham and Yitzchak did, which is to rectify Esav and to rectify Elifaz and to rectify Amalek. And so it starts with saying, it's mutar, it's allowed to have doubts. It's okay that I have any or all of these five doubts. The world is made in a way that it's doubtful. That it's, we don't have absolute answers to these questions. It's all very deep theological questions that we don't know. And, and living with faith means living with these doubts. And when you embrace them and you accept them, and you, bring, you, and you don't try to push them away and get rid of them, then they become smaller, and they become your friends, and they become something that, that goes along with you, and then you can truly overcome them. And then you can fulfill en simcha spekot in the original simple meaning that you, you overcome them. And, um, and so we, may we, using this inspiration and this, uh, this lesson, go into Purim and go into, uh, go into Adar and go into Purim and, uh, and celebrate together. And also, if you remember the first thing, the, the very beginning of the class, I said that the verse from Proverbs 
was the, the light of the eyes brings joy to the heart, and this is the getting rid of doubts. But then the second half was but uh, it's not enough to get rid of doubts, you also have to learn a lot of Torah to build a Torah perspective, to fill our body, nourish ourselves, nourish our souls with a lot of Torah, and together they can uh, lead us on our way. Thank you so much for watching this video. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please leave your comment below. Also, if you like the video, like, subscribe to the channel, share it, and consider maybe becoming a Patreon to support these videos. Thank you so much. Thank you.